Last week was Pentecost Sunday. This week is Trinity Sunday, and liturgically we celebrate those with the color red. It reminds us of the power of the Trinity, Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit. What I'd like for us to understand, before we even dig into this text, is the, the profound diversity within the Trinitarian Godhead. Three distinct persons, yet there's never a time in our experience of Trinity when they're not all three present. They may not be primary in the story, but they are all three present. No hierarchy. Total and complete reciprocity, mutuality, equality within different functions. And this is played out in a very powerful psalm, Psalm 13. This Friday, we will do our fourth food distribution. We still need a few more shoppers, all hands on deck. If you're willing to shop for two families, would you uh, please let us know? And uh, it's the same routine that we've done, and it's a great way to be the hands and the feet of Christ during difficult, uncertain, and certainly extreme times. Also next Sunday, June 14th, is going to be the second installment of Taking Love on the Road. Last Sunday we got halfway through a list of about 30 people that 14 cars loaded up and drove by honking horns and, and just letting our people know that we love them. We didn't get all the way through, but we want to visit everyone. So next Sunday at noon, Taking love on the road, as one person, Sharon W., had on the side of her car. She called it, and I love this, the love caravan. And only PPC would have a love caravan. Earlier this week, I came across a prayer by an anonymous author that I really, really liked. I'd like to start with this this morning. I didn't take very many liberties with the text. It reads almost verbatim with the exception of a couple of words that I read a few days ago. It goes like this. I think you're going to enjoy it. I know I have. Dear Lord, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy or grumpy or sarcastic or nasty or judgmental or bigoted. I haven't been selfish or overly indulgent. It's a pretty confident fella or person. I'm very thankful for that, Lord. <laughs> but in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get up out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more of your help. Please help me, Lord. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I love that prayer. And my confession is I feel more and more and more that way as we go deeper into uncharted territories. I've been feeling a lot like this in recent months. It's the trifecta of the pandemic and soaring unemployment and now racial unrest in the death of George Floyd. It leaves us with our heads spinning. We try to hold a balance between people's needs, our church's needs, 
the needs of the community, the nation, and the world. And pastorally, it almost makes your head spin. Sometimes we hit the nail on the head, and sometimes we miss the mark a bit. But through the grace, mercy, and God on Trinity Sunday, we will be able to meet all of these needs with a profound sense of the hope that comes in God through Christ Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of God. And if you're at home, say amen. Last week, I asked us to consider, challenged us to consider being anti-racists. A number of weeks ago, my sister-in-law, whom I highly and profoundly respect, sent me a book out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it. It came to me in the mail via our good friends at Amazon. And the title of the book was, How to Be an Anti-Racist. The book sat on my desk for a few days, written by Ibram Kendi. And then that Monday, that fateful day unfolded, and I I couldn't even still open the book. Shock, disbelief, just sadness. And I began to read that book. And Ibram Kendi says this in the book, an anti-racist is someone who expresses the idea that racial groups are equals, And none of these racial groups need developing. In other words, they're all equal. They're all God-created in God's image. And an anti-racist is someone who supports policy that reduces racial inequity. See, an anti-racist can't sit in silence. An anti-racist must, has to, ought to, shall do something. I've received overwhelming support for last week's message. In fact, it kind of blew me away, startlingly and refreshingly so. But many also asked, okay, I'm in, I'm on board, I'm with you, so what? Now what? Tell me what to do. Now this is where it gets nuanced again. Because we live in a fine print world, don't we? Our lives are complex, and I actually like the word textured more than complex. Our lives are textured by fine print. And there's a pastoral tension that lies in two key questions. How do we talk about being an anti-racist without making someone feel guilty or shame? This is not about guilt. This is not about shame. This is about now what? The intent of last week was not about shame or guilt. It was a prelude to now what? It's not about guilt. It's not about shame. It's about godly, Holy Spirit, Pentecost, Trinitarian transformation. And a second pastoral nuance sounds like this, and it's perhaps even more difficult, as if the first nuance wasn't challenging and textured enough. How do we have these conversations at a pace that people can handle? 
Because let's be honest, we're all at different points in our process, in our journey. Some folks are already peacefully protesting. Some folks are writing legislatures. Some folks are getting involved in city council meetings. Other folks, they're just getting on board. And there are other folks that are all the way through in the middle. How do we respect and honor the individual journeys that so many of our folks are on at different paces and different places? Again, it's about slowing down and staying engaged and being tender with one another. But I believe, I believe the further into this journey we go, in the words of C.S. Lewis from a few weeks ago, the further up and further in we move. The further up and further in into the being of God on Trinity Sunday that we go, the bigger God gets, and there's more room for all of us at a pace that we can handle without guilt or shame. And if you're at home, be presbycostal and say, Amen, Tobin. So today is the second installment that I began last week. It's now what do we do? And let's go to Psalm 13. It's a phenomenal psalm. I love the psalms. One of these years I'm going to do a Summer in the Psalms series. Just doesn't that sound lovely? I said lovely. I don't use that word often. But it truly does. Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is a lament psalm. Four verses that cry out to God. And then the very last verse takes an amazing transition, transformation. I think it's so important to answering this question, now what? Psalm 13. There are four how long, O Lords, in this psalm. I'll try to point them out. Well, you'll see them as you read in your own Bible, or follow along on the screen. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Which for the Hebrew means a deep, compassionate Longing and yearning that goes deeper to the heart, into the, into the stomach, and through the whole body. You can almost feel the fibromyalgic type of sensation. And number four, how long will my enemy, how long will my enemy triumph over me? And then he prays. He's protested, now he prays. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes. Let me see the sparkle in my eyes again. Bring me back to life or I'll sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. And before I read this last verse, I want us to think about the flow of this text thus far. Profound lament deep-seated prayer. There's a period at the end of verse 4. And in my Bible, between the end of verse 4 and that period, there's a literal space. Something profound happens in that space so that the psalmist, when he gets to verse 5, he can reply 
with a radically different and profoundly renewed disposition. And he says, with hope, abundant hope and clarity and steadfast love for a new future, he says, but I trust in your unfailing love, O God. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for the Lord has been good to me. My friends, the reading of God's holy word. Amen. Life-giving pivots are not easy. It's hard work. The now what of life-giving pivots is where we find ourselves this Trinity Sunday in, I believe, a profound text. This text, this psalm, this song gives us three L's, three L's, and one H. Three L's and one H that help us determine now what. Because we've already begun the now what. Last week was a beginning of the now what. Unleashing. Stop remaining silent because silence is complicity. Open we're opening the lid to let the bad air out, Bruce Coburn would say. We've already begun our journey into now what? Today, we go deeper. The first L of now what? Is lament. The first L of now what? Lament. Just like the psalmist did. Four times he said, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Why do I have to wait? Why are you not listening? Why are my enemies overcoming me? Does any of this sound vaguely familiar? You see, lament brings our anger and our pain, and I've heard exhaustion used over and over and over again. Our hurt it brings our desire for equality for all people. And it brings it to the right place. It brings it to the presence of the Trinity. It brings it to the presence of God. You see, lament is faith's response to despair. Our psalmist laments four times. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You see, it's easy when we're in the pain for the apparent silence of God to be received and understood as the withdrawal of God, but that's not what's happening. God in Jesus Christ lamented with us in our sin on the cross. God entered humanity to die on the cross so that Christ could understand our pain and our suffering, could enter into the silence of God when we're in that amount of pain and darkness. Part of the now what is to really feel all of these emotions, to let them sink in, to have their awakening in us so that we will emerge with but I, but I, transformed, renewed, reconciled, at peace because there's justice. The second how long goes like this. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? No doubt this psalmist has read the Scriptures. 
We even use it today, a text out of Numbers, as a blessing and benediction when we send, we send ourselves out into the world to be the hands and feet of Christ. He's recalling the blessing in Numbers where the writer of Numbers says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. See, where is the Lord's face shining graciously on the lament of the writer of this psalm? You see, the writer of this psalm is not throwing shade at their pastor or other people or other people groups. The writer of lament is throwing shade at God where it belongs. Not at anyone or anything else, but at God. The third how long, how long, O oh Lord, must I wrestle with my own thoughts, the sorrow that I have every day in my heart. You see, what's happening with this psalmist is an interior struggle. It's happening to him. This interior struggle is where the dismantling of racism begins with inside of each and every single one of us. It begins with me. It begins with you in the small ways, the ways in which we judge people, the ways in which we favor people, the ways in which we overtly lock our doors when we're frightened in our cars, the way we avoid certain neighborhoods because they are, and I quote, not safe for my kids. And the fourth, how long, O oh Lord, will my enemy triumph over me? How long, O oh Lord, will my enemy triumph over me? There's no visible outside enemy to this psalmist here. The enemy is the psalmist. He has met his enemy, and the enemy is himself. Four times, the psalmist cries out in protest and lament to God. And on Trinity Sunday, we can be assured that the Godhead hears this because Christ is the mediator and the Holy Spirit is allowing these thoughts, words, and emotions to emerge, to be vocalized, and to be mediated to the Godhead through Christ himself. But the writer does not stop there, thanks be to God. He prays. He prays for help. He prays for deliverance. He pray, prays for restoration. He prays to be heard. You see, the psalmist is sick and tired of being sick and tired. The psalmist is protesting. The psalmist is peacefully protesting in the psalmist's lament. He's pleading with God to hear. Consider and answer me, O Lord, instead of forgetting Give light to my eyes. Let my eyes sparkle again like they used to, full of Zoe life. Instead of hiding your face, I'm petrified and exhausted. Notice also there's no call on God to pour out God's anger upon an outside enemy or to crush them because the struggle is raging within inside of the writer. Now the text here at the end of verse 4 gets very, very interesting to me. At the end of verse 4, can you pull up verse 4? Is that possible? 
There's a period. Thank you. When I fall, period. Four verses of lament and prayer. Please show up. I'm tired and exhausted. Please show up. But notice, notice in the text, if you have your Bible with you, in my Bible at the end of verse 4, when I fall, period, there is literally space. Now, I don't know if this was done intentionally. I'd like to think so. What is happening in that space between? Hey, that's a reference to Dave Matthews' band. What is happening in that space between the period and this amazing, emphatic change of disposition that says, but I trust in your unfailing love. What an amazing turnaround. You just have to wonder what's happening in that space. Did the psalmist go to church and hear a, a word of hope? Did someone really, really light, light it up that day and make them feel something different? I don't know. There's some inner transformation going on in the life of the psalmist between the period and the but I. Something amazing took place in his soul. Maybe it was an epiphany. Maybe it was a conversion. I would say it was an aha moment. And I would say it's probably all these and other words I haven't used yet and more. Something in that space between profoundly restored the writer to a new disposition. It didn't all go away. It was a new disposition. Here's what I think happened in that space between the period and the but I. Our now what began with lament. And in that space between, we're given two more. Listen, and learn. Listen and learn. The second L of now what? In that space between, listen. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to others who are crying out. Listen not to yourself opine about what is happening, but stop talking. Stop writing. Stop tweeting. Stop texting. Stop opining. Just stop and listen to the other. Listen to those who are hurting and in pain. Do not judge. Do not feel guilt or shame. That's not what this is about. It's about just listening respectfully, recognizing the dignity of the other. Because when we listen well, we are now on our first steps of becoming anti-racist. You see, the psalmist stopped talking. After the period, the psalmist himself teaches us to be quiet, to stop talking. He stopped and he listened to others. He listened to God through the Word. He listened in, in worship. He listened to the lyrics of the song. He listened to others who were struggling in the streets. The psalmist listened and so must we. Listen to what black parents teach their children. Listen to what Latinos teach their children. Listen to what white parents teach their children. And what do you notice 
of the differences between those. Are there differences? Why are there differences? What are those differences? What causes those differences? Respond not, of, not out of judgment or fear of the other. Respond out of curiosity because there's transformation taking place between the period and the but I. Be inquisitive. Listen. You know, you don't have to be a perfect ally to begin this journey. Just begin where you're at. Wherever you are. And you know what else? We're going to make mistakes. This week, Drew Brees did. Drew Brees made a mistake. But he listened. And then he made amends. Because in Drew Brees' life, in that space between the period and but I, Drew Brees listened. Our psalmist asks us to listen. God asks us to listen. Which brings me to the third L of now what? To learn. Just be committed to being a learner. Commit to do some reading and listen as we read. Avoiding again the temptation to judge. It's not about judgment. It's not about shame. It's not about guilt. It's about the space between the period and the but I. This week I've been compiling with the help of other people a bibliography so that I can go to school. So that while I'm lamenting, I can listen and learn. And what blows me away about this psalm is that space, something happened. After the lament, there was listening and there was learning. There was a transformation. And it happened to the psalmist. You see, in the midst of all of his words, he had the wise presence of mind to stop talking and listening. He listened to God in the Word. He listened to other people in their perspective. He learned about the other and held it as a curiosity the psalmist came to his senses because just as at the, he was at the end of his rope, swirling out of control in a tempest's rage, and rightly so, it's as if he was drowning underwater and he had nowhere to go, unable to survive. All of a sudden, the tow rope of God was given to him just as death was out, about to overtake him. And he grabbed that tow rope of hope. And the Trinitarian love of God pulled him to the surface as he was just about ready to lose his last breath. And with his first breath coming out of the water, he says, but I, but I, but I trust in your God unfailing love. My heart rejoices in salvation. I will sing to the Lord for the Lord has been good to me. Wow. Is the storm over? Heart, no. Is the threat of death gone? No. Is it like a two-hour movie where everybody lives happily ever after from that moment on? Hardly. Let's get serious. This is a textured, fine print world. 
You see, the storm in the psalm is still raging. But in the midst of the rage of dark waters, there's a reassuring presence. The unfailing love of God, a heart that rejoices in salvation, a powerful transformation and new disposition has evolved in the life of the psalmist in the space between. The psalmist now believes so much in the steadfast love of God that he's driven to protest and to question when his life experience seemed to be pointing him in a false direction of despair. And yet, but I, joy and pain, protest and trust may coexist. The psalm doesn't even suggest he dropped his protest. The psalm does not suggest he dropped his lament. But the psalm does tell us he's given a brand new disposition. The new disposition, the only word I can think of is hope. Hope, hope, and more hope. Many years ago, and it feels like two or three lifetimes ago, our family of five, we were on a summer vacation. We were gifted a cabin by friends to stay for free. Basically, we, can't, we couldn't afford vacation. Any vacation we went on, it was a freebie. Somebody lent us something. We were teaching our girls how to water ski on Battle Lake, Minnesota. And you've been there, my guess is. The attempts, the fall, the fail. The attempts, the fall, the fail. The attempts, the fall, the fail. The encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. Over and over and over. More often than not, our kids couldn't get out of the water the very first day. They were too tired and exhausted. That's all right, we'll get it tomorrow. How long, O Lord? You could see the disappointment in their eyes. How long, O oh Lord? The next day would come and sit back in the water. Put your skis out of the water. The rope in the middle. Hang on to the rope. Don't let go of the rope. The rope is what pulls you out of the water. And when you get out of the water, hang on to the rope. It's the rope of hope. Don't let go. Sure enough. Never forget my oldest pulling Jessica out of the water. I don't know how old she was. 12 maybe. Sorry, I apologize already. I'm pretty sure I got the, the age wrong. The smile on her face. She even had a little moment where she lost her presence of mind. She held onto the <laughs> handle with one hand and just went like this because she was so excited. I'm like, hold on to the rope, baby girl. High fives in the boat, jumping up and down, yelling back there, giving thumbs up. You did it, you did it, you did it. Miracle of miracles. The smiles, the high fives, the fist pumps. Why? <sighs> because hope always pulls us out of the water 
into a new and exciting new world. Life-giving pivots. Now what? Lament, listen, learn. Oh, that space between. And when we get pulled out of the water because of hope, the world seems and is a lot different. Lord, in your mercies, hear our prayers.